It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Out of the street corners they scream. You knew it was coming. You've been waiting for this for months. Rumor hardened into fear and now they scream at you. The sirens, their hysterical wail tearing through the white noise of the city. And you run. You run to pick up those things that can never be replaced. A picture of them in the days when they still loved you. Your mother's wedding ring. And then you turn to your shelf of games. You only have room for five. Five games for Doomsday. Five Games for Doomsday is a show in which board game personalities are thrust into a cabin in the woods to outrun an oncoming disaster, but can only take five of their games with them. But which will they choose? My guest this week is a legend of the wargaming world, but also used his skills in game design to help train the CIA. He's a retired CIA analyst and instructor at the CIA's own training facility, the Sherman Kent School for Intelligence Analysis. In the board game world, he's probably best well known for being the inventor of the coin series of games, which try and unravel the puzzle of internecine conflict. My guest this week is Volko Runka. Volko, welcome to the cabin. So to begin with then, my first question is, how difficult was it for you to choose the five games to take to the cabin? It is difficult. Uh, And, you know, there's, you have so many uh, things you love and everything has its place. So trying to choose the top four or five uh, games for that I might, you know, be interested in playing or projects I might be interested in working on in the future is it very much, I think, comes down actually to to time. If you ask me that, question a year ago or a year from now would probably be a different answer. Uh, do you think, in a sense, for the war gamer, this this task is a little bit easier? Because it seems to me that war games have the notion of replayability built into them in a way that more conventional games don't. Well, that's interesting. That hadn't occurred to me about war games having more replayability built in um however if even if that is true if i have to pick what are the five most interesting or the five most replayable i'm still probably in the most part comparing one war game to another so it still leaves the choice a difficult one and and sort of what criteria did you use for taking the games to the cabin was it sentimentality was it was it pure utility i i'm going to get the most value out of this game or, or was it something else I suppose it is utility. It was what what am I going to find most uh, engrossing and entertaining over an extended period of time? Uh, I'm 
I don't have too much sentimentality about about old games. I, I some, I suppose, but I didn't bring it to the cabin to to look at it uh, on the shelf and say, "Oh, those were the days." But rather, you know, here's something I can I can play a lot and still have a, be interested in playing more. Or in my case, uh, here's a game that I'm working on right now that I'm looking forward to spending time um, uh, developing, refining, finishing the design. And and so you you're going to have to forgive me here because I'm I'm something of a well a neophyte would be overselling it I think when it comes to to war games myself but it it seems that war games have a a sort of an aesthetic that sort of goes across the genre in the way when I look at more conventional board games you have very different styles and there is a, a, a an ever more present leaning towards miniatures and components do you think uh, you yourself and war gamers in general do you think they have an attachment to the the object of the game not just the mechanics or do you think war gamers are much more about focusing on the rules rather than the bling that goes with it it, it it's interesting the the starting point i would always have thought was the simulation, right? The, the, you know, what is the model in there that's going to help show me how this battle or this war worked in history? But I found over time, in fact, I think war gamers, like other gamers, do have a lot of attachment to the form of the thing. Uh, art uh, nowadays is, is as important to war games as other board games in transporting you to that time in history in that place. And uh, war gamers, I think, like any hobbyists, can become attached to the uh, forms that they're used to and what uh, what what has worked for them in the past, and consider that beautiful and something new, undesirable, or anathema. And I've certainly run into that in terms of reactions to my own designs and questions like why why does this have wooden cubes and not little cardboard chits with numbers on them? That they're, that that's that's some somehow a detriment to the experience if what you're used to is chits with numbers. And and sort of I've noticed within, you know, board games have sort of niches that are away from the sort of the mainstream of the hobby game, if you like. And so, but I've noticed there has been a sort of upping in production for things like 18xx games and train games. And, you know, I was always very surprised when I got into games that, in a war game, a mounted board was a was a, was a special thing. Do you think war games are going away from that sort of feeling of being made by guys in their garages to a more sort of conventional, professional mode of production? Well, a- absolutely. In in terms of the you know the the leading companies, quality, physical quality, has come up as it has in the in the in the rest of, of the, the hobby and maybe with war games it started at a lower level so that that's that's even more noticeable uh, and and questions like uh, is the is the board mounted and how cleanly are the counters cut and does it have wood bits and are the wood bits embossed and what is the quality of the playing cards all of that comes in uh, in reactions of players and reviewers to war games absolutely. I will say, however, at the same time, that 
it, that, that's not to imply that this cottage industry, um, desktop published and print to play and less, um, pricey, um, publisher games. It's not to say that those aren't thriving as well. We really have, uh, a, a thousand flowers blooming. And so is there a sort of indie side to war gaming as there's an indie side to everything? There, there absolutely is. And, uh, in the past, you know, there were, there were micro games, little, little pocket one and two dollar games you could buy in a little baggie. And, uh, there are all kinds of designers, uh, experimenting, putting out their own, um, designs for free print and play. Um, publishing games through Game uh, Crafter, uh, home publishing them. There are publishers that specialize in uh, lower lower cost uh, components, and and ones that specialize in very you know very ritzy productions at the other end of the scale. So so yeah, it's quite a variety, and, and indie is a good word for for segments of it. So let's go back to the beginning then. So you 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 told me that you were born to a you know, a German father and a mother brought up in a German family in in uh, Argentina. How did your parents end up in America? Well, uh, my, uh, my my father uh, had emigrated from you know post war Germany in the late fifties to the United States with you know and found an employer to help uh, bring him over. His older brother had essentially done the same thing uh, uh, from Germany to Uruguay and Argentina. And he ended up, um, my father's older brother ended up uh, marrying uh, there in in, uh, in uh, Argentina and Uruguay. My father went down to, from the United States to visit his brother and meet the new uh, bride, meet his sister-in-law, and ended up getting engaged to her younger sister. And they got <laughs> married there, and both my parents came up to the United States. And, and what was it like to be a German in America so close to the second world war do you do you think your parents found it difficult or were they there at a time when sort of things had blown over oh by that time it was the early 60s and yes i would say i would say things had blown over and of course for my mother i mean she was she was in at montevideo as in as a as a as a toddler when the um Ralph Bay was was shuttled, scuttled there, but she was, you know, she was young. So she, she they were growing up in the 1950s, really. Uh, but my father, as a had been a young teenager in World War II already. Um, obviously, my grandparents on his side had um, vivid uh, recollections of the war. So I did grow up on um, stories of World War II from the point of view of of, of the German civilian. And sort of, do you think that gave you a unique perspective into sort of people's attitudes to war? In that, I, I remember I saw the movie when I was sort of sixteen and seventeen. I saw the movie Stalingrad, which is a German Second World War film, and I was quite shocked at German soldiers being portrayed as human beings because I'd grown up on Where Eagles Dare and The Great Escape and things like this, you know, very much films that portray the Germans as the villains. Do you, do you think you, you have a more sort of rounded view of that period simply by the house in which you grew up? Uh, I, I think it did. It, uh, you know, we all, um, I mean, it's a good example that you give how we all look at at life and history and, and humanity through through the, the experiences and the information we have, and it's always a particular perspective and a partial 
set of information. So in my case, it was different, I think, than many of my boyhood friends in terms of what I had consumed, which was stories like, um, like my, you know, father having a schoolhouse, you know, bombed by the Russians and being happy about it because he was failing some of his classes and the records were all <laughs> destroyed. And then the family just barely uh, escaping being overrun by the Red Army as it was uh, escaped. They lived in East Prussia and they were crossing Poland and arriving as refugees in Dresden and being bombed there by the Americans um, and seeing, you know, my father as a, as a boy seeing, um, you know, civilians with, you know, burning phosphorus on their skin and so forth from the American bombs. And uh, my grandfather, who been a, a conscript soldier uh, at the end of the war, being in a French POW camp for another two years and faking asthma just to be able to uh, to go home at that point, and then uh, you know a, a sort of a starvation time afterwards. My family always sent my father to go collect the uh, food coupons because he was a very thin boy, and it made it look like the family needed more coupons. And so I, you know, so it wasn't you know that. Where Eagles Dare or Kelly's Heroes were, uh, view of World War II that I was growing up on. But I, I do think that made me, if anything, more interested in uh, war as a phenomenon and and what is it like for human beings to to experience that. And and did that manage to give you a view of Germans' attitudes towards Hitler? Because, you know, when you're brought up, I was brought up in Britain on sort of British history, and you assume all the Germans are Nazis until you get a bit older and there's a nuance. I mean, did you, you know, was there talk of how people felt towards the Third Reich discussed over the dinner table or in the living room? Yes. And I mean, I'll say at the beginning, of course, I have no way of verifying, um, you know, what I heard, but, but here, here's what I heard. And that was, you know, my, my father's father was, as I said, conscripted right in the beginning, um, didn't have any, you know, interest in war, but, but really had no choice. He, and he was a uh, construction engineer and built bunkers and things like that. And, um, did get into a situation once on the Russian front, um, confronted while on guard duty by a. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A couple of individual Russian soldiers, and he managed to capture them and, and win a, an Iron Cross, but it was pretty much just, you know, by, by accident, really. And he never he went through six years of war and was never wounded. So the kind of story was he kept his head down and, and tried to survive. Uh, and And my father's mother was never... Uh, the, at least as, as what I was being told, was really never very um, supportive of the regime and um, was not enthusiastic about the war. She had gone through World War One and actually the Russian Revolution um, because she had been um, taken by the, the Russian army and, and internally displaced within Russia. Um, and then afterwards had to, as a g girl with her family, get back home to Germany going across Russia as was in revolution. So she was not very enthusiastic. Um, about war and the regime. However, when the, when the family started to experience the, uh, American and I presume British bombing, 
of the cities, uh, I was told uh, as a kid. She, like a lot of other Germans, for the you know, she for the first time started um, contributing, uh, you know, don't making donations to the war effort, uh, and in effect the regime because uh, because what the what the bombing did was hardened the civilians against an enemy in in a way that perhaps they had not been before. That that was a kind of story that I heard growing up. And so, do you think that it was it was you know? Those kind of conversations around the dinner table, the atmosphere in which you were growing up, that that drew you towards war games. Were they the games you were always into when games entered your life? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's hard for me to know for sure why what you know why a certain thing looked interesting to me as a ten year old. But it was about when I was ten years old that I saw, um, in this case, Avalon Hill. War games, and and they did very often have you know German troops on them, uh, or German equipment, and uh, and you know in the in the in the game store in the toy store saying oh that looks cool I'd like to try that out and uh, and eventually you know being able to to afford to buy one now whether that came directly from my family heritage and the kind I don't know I actually haven't myself um, pondered that it's 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 possible that that played a role and it's it's very interesting I do this I, I've done this a lot and I, I I sort of always ask the origin story of people as gamers and I I get usually one of three answers it's either Redbox D&D Catan or Avalon Hill War Games how important do you think those Avalon Hill War Games have been to the development of gaming culture. Well, I think they're an, uh, a, a a critical part of the early pathway. So, when I look at what the board gaming tribes are today, and we talk about war gamers and euro gamers and train games and all that, a, a great deal of it comes from from tradition, and, and tradition is to some degree happenstance, and a happenstance in in wargaming is uh, Charles S. Roberts and Avalon Hill, and in the 50s and 60s, the first set of uh, serious board games having to do with topics like the Battle of Waterloo or the Battle of Gettysburg or Midway and so forth. And and it that happened to be the topic for these games, and that began a tradition. And Avalon Hill was the central pillar of of that tradition that that became what was called a golden age of of board wargaming in the 1970s uh SPI um following on that GDW and other companies and it were those were the games that that my friends had those were the games I saw in the stores those were the games I started playing and and began that self-reinforcing um, interest in history in which I, I'd play a game and it'd make me want to read about that history some more and then want to go on to explore something similar from another time in history or another part of the same war or something like that. And all that builds and branches out. And so when we look at games about history, games that are making that the part of the fun is the simulation and what you're simulating is some aspect of human history a great deal of those games are 
board war games are about happen to be about military history rather than political history, economic history, cultural history, and so forth. And that's not because board games are not very powerful at exploring any kind of human affair, any kind of human history. It's just that it happens that that the serious games that were designed, marketed, and became popular in the 1950s to the 1970s in the United States were war games. And, and, and so Avalon Hill, uh, uh, you know, Avalon Hill doing what it did, uh, successfully, I think is, has, a, has a great deal to do with, um, who hobbyists like myself are and what they, what they play today and what they have available to them today. And, and do you think, um, so, you know, I live in Germany and the Euro game came out of Germany as a sort of response to the Second World War in many ways, in that the Germans obviously didn't want to remind themselves of war. And so war games weren't an option. So they developed the Euro game as a, as a way of gaming on the table without dealing with subjects they didn't want to face. Do you think there, there was a sense of triumphalism in those Avalon Hill games? Or, or were they attempting neutral reconstruction of those events? Well, I, 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 both may be true. Uh, again, the, the demeanor of those games and of most war games today is one of seriousness, of a, of a serious examination. We are doing research and we're going to show you in this game of how the Battle of France in 1940 occurred. And what was important and what might plausibly have gone differently, what the French, what the Allies might have done that they didn't do and so forth. We're going to try to illuminate how it was that the Germans pulled off this victory. So that's from a posture of, of the, of the historian. We're going to try to examine it and give you a simulation. And the reason this is fun for you is because it's a simulation. It's going to, you know, put you in the realistic roles of these things. Now, at the same time, it, it, it can be true that certain roles or certain aspects are celebrated and that, um, okay, this is a cool looking tank and that's why we're going to put this tank on the cover, you know, to help sell the game and, um, and to make it exciting and not just clinical. There might be some, um, celebration of triumphs by one side or the other. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't think those are exclusive. And, and so when did you start to design games? And is it is it the the inevitable destiny of the war gamer that you, you inevitably rewrite rules and create variants for the games that you're playing? I don't think it's inevitable. Uh, and for me, it took some time. I um, had a, a, there was a moment I was about a decade into the hobby and I had been playing these games as uh, entirely as received wisdom. That, that is to say, some professionals, you know, research this and design this and they know it and it's correct, you know, and I'm going to, and I'm going to play it, um, and, and get a correct view of history. And it, it was actually an occasion I was visiting, uh, I was touring Europe and got a chance to visit, uh, some of the market garden battlefields. And I'd been playing a game set there. And when I actually went there, I saw that the terrain on the battlefield was nothing like what it was in my game boards. And it was a kind of a shock, like, whoa, I mean, why? What's going on here? And and from then on, I think I started a period of another, oh, probably 
15 years or so of just tinkering of, okay, I think this rule could be better, or I, I think I can, um, I can expand this in a, a certain way to bring out the history uh, more effectively. And I went from that, from, from tinkering, which is a great advantage of board games is you don't have to you know, uh, reprogram software as with a computer game. You can just use a pencil to change the game to your taste. I mean, it's really a wonderful aspect uh, of the medium. And eventually I'm going to, you know, scenarios and expansions and things like that. And some of those also published being involved in playtesting and, and uh, uh, of designers games. And it's not until I'm, you know, decades in that it occurred to me that if I don't think there's a good enough game on a topic that I'm very interested in, why don't I just design it myself? Um, and I thought, which I finally did in the, you know, the year 2000 and I'd been gaming since the early 1970s. And so, so that was a path. And there are, I think, war gamers who might come to tinkering and designing much quicker than I did. At the same time, there are others who might uh, not be so interested in that. They're interested in sampling different games, or they're interested in the, the, the com competition of it, or they're interested in reviewing and, and critiquing games or discussing the evolution of the, the art form. So there are, there are various, if you will, um, I'd say specializations within the hobby because there just are various ways to enjoy the medium. So your first game then is Combat Commander Pacific. So, so firstly, why do we find the Second World War so fascinating? Do you think it's because we have goodies and baddies in a way that real life rarely offers us? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't really know. I think I could think of other wars um, that might be that way as well that aren't as well represented. And I, I wonder if I would go first back to where did the proliferation of World War II games come from and how did it start? And I go back to Charles Roberts and Avalon Hill and, and the first games that made this kind of thing a thing, made this kind of thing a hobby. Um, and it, that was in the, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s that that path was set. Well, the, the recent big event um, that would be the subject of most war movies and uh, documentaries and books was World War II. And so there were, certainly were games on American Civil War and Napoleonic Wars and other things. But it, I think in that period, it's almost inevitable that a lot of the um, volume is going to be taken up, taken up by looking back on the last generation's really big war. And, uh, and it, it is... A world war and the biggest world war that that the world has seen. So, so in the immediate decades after the biggest war that the world has seen, you would expect a lot of games to cover that, right? And and that tradition builds on itself. Uh, that that you go into a store or a catalog or to your friends house and, and, and what do you see? There's a, a lot of different titles, but an awful lot of them are about World War II. And you're familiar with that story from other media. And so you're, you know you're interested in it. And so that's what you're going to try and get into. So again, I, I, I wonder if it doesn't have more to do with the happenstance of the pathway and when the hobby first emerged um, than uh, inherent, I don't know, moral aspects of that war. And 
So I've been listening recently to the the episode just dropped of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, and he's talking about the Pacific theatre specifically in that. And I'm, while far from being an expert, I, I enjoy history, and I, I realise I know almost nothing about the Pacific theatre. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you think there is a deficit of knowledge on the Pacific Theatre, or is it just my... British European blinkers. I think there is. Uh, so European World War II is at the top of the is at the top of the heap in terms of coverage in the hobby, and World War II itself is you know larger is 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 at the top of the heap compared to other wars. But the Pacific Theater is is it's not undergamed because there's there are tremendous amount of Pacific Theater games compared to other episodes in history, but Relative to European theater, yes, absolutely. And that might be a part of the reason why, it's not the only reason, but a part of the reason why I would choose to grab Combat Commander Pacific uh, from Chad Jensen rather than Combat Commander Europe, even if you allowed me with Combat Commander Europe to include the Mediterranean box and all the scenarios, there's a lot more that's been done for Europe than Pacific. But even so, um, I just find the Pacific volume more alluring uh in part because it's more it is more it's more interesting it's more exotic it's more fresh um i i you know i oh yeah another european world war ii game well okay what is it offered it's different and uh and pacific is still a little bit uh a little bit um uh less uh thoroughly trodden and and how does this game tell us about the conflict? How is the design reflecting what is specific about the Pacific theatre of war? Well, uh, a part of that answer is to realize what the, the scope is. So war games are are divided broadly into tactical, operational, and strategic scale. And in this case, we're talking very tactical. We've got individual squads, you know, you know a piece might be 10 uh, soldiers or even a single leader, uh, and you're, you're covering um, you know, maybe a, a stretch of, of, of less than a mile, uh, on a side uh, of, of the map. So it's not going to be telling you too much about, um, great power issues such as, you know, why did Japan launch its attacks and, um, what were the strengths and weaknesses of U.S. overall strategy and, uh, and what was the nature of the, um, the human, suffering that resulted and so forth. It's really coming down to the very, you know, nitty gritty 
Um, how are these small units maneuvering over terrain? What kind of weapons do they have? What kind of tactical, how does their tactical doctrine affect the options that a company or a battalion commander might have in a, in a, you know, a conflict spanning, a, you know, a, a clash that might take just an hour, something like that. So we're really zoomed in. So in terms of what the expectations are of what it might tell us. But what it does, um, to me do very well is, 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 is transport us into that theater because we get through the construction of the game uh, a great look at the strengths and weaknesses of the different nationalities that we're fighting uh, and the and the impact of the often very harsh terrain. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite scenarios is set on uh, Eora Creek in, in New Guinea. So the Australians against the Japanese and it's these steep uh, jungly slopes and a rushing river at the bottom and a little, uh, you know, a rickety little bridge that the, uh, Australians have to get across, uh, to, uh, come on to the Japanese positions. And, and to me, when I play that scenario, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's like, I, I just, I can, I feel like I can feel the New Guinea jungle around me. And so Chad Jensen, who designed this game recently passed away. What yeah. contribution do you think he made to the world of games and specifically the world of war games? So he has been, uh, he was a very successful designer of, of Euro games and dominant species um, stands out. But for me, the Combat Commander series, I mean, is, a, is, is, it, is alone enough to put him into the pantheon. Uh, for me, that was probably the highest expression of the um, card-driven game um, genre within war games, but um, articulated in a very, very original way, um, making the most, I think, possible use of a of, uh, deck of cards for many different functions, um, all design decisions being, being, being the right ones. Um, uh, Tremendous uh, accessibility at the same time that there's tremendous detail, at the same time that there's tremendous uh, immersion in the particulars and a scope for a, a great variety of settings, as I was just describing about Combat Commander Pacific and New Guinea. And it was, it's almost like when you have that, his whole um, series in your game room, it's sort of, you know, where in the world do I want to go today? Where in the world of of, of World War II infantry combat, and, and, and it's all different. So it, it, to me, it's just a, a monumental um, achievement of, 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 of Chad Jensen's. And that, like any great series, um, led to additional work by other designers and developers, and uh, a lot of that uh, orchestrated by his, his wife, Kai, um, develop, great developer and designer, John Foley, and and more recently, we now have, and I'm just adoring and getting into um, uh, Great War Commander, which takes the whole system and sets it in World War One. So you can go to the trenches in no man's land and gas attacks and, and tanks even of, of the Western Front in the Great War. And all of that, of course, building on um, Chad Jensen's uh, craft. 
So I want to go on now and talk about your professional life as far as we can talk about it. And so you worked for the Central Intelligence Agency. And and how does a person get a job at the CIA? I always imagine that you're stood in a bar drinking a Manhattan and someone comes up to you and slides a card over and says, do you want to work for the good guys? Is it anything like that? Or is it do you apply for any, for it like any normal job? So it, it, it's not, uh, it's not like that. And, uh, for me, it was, it was, of course, back before the internet. So there were brochures and, uh, uh things like that to advertise and contact. And you could, you sent in an application by mail as you, as you would for any government job. Uh, and nowadays it's just go to www.cia.gov. I think there's probably a careers tab or something like that. And you can uh, get more information and make contact. But it's it's a it's a uh, it's a government uh, agency, and the 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 recruiting and the staffing is actually very similar to any other government agency. And so, why did you want to work at the CIA? Well, I had and it, it, it it's certainly wrapped up in in my gaming hobby because, as I mentioned before, you know, I start as a child. I'm seeing the cool box covers or whatever. Maybe I'm recollecting family memories of or family stories of, of of life during during the war. I like the games. I'm enjoying the game. That gets me interested in the in the uh, um, the subject. Um, I even I wrote up you know sixth grade. I wrote a, a, a essentially a book report, but it was was sent more on done on a game. So I'm researching the battles. I'm reading more, and all of that built a hit, an interest not only in history. Um, but in, in, in foreign affairs as well. And I ended up, I'm, I majored in history and international relations in college. Again, you know, feeding off of that interest that was originally stimulated by Avalon Hill Games, I think. And, uh, and then studied uh, the same thing, international affairs, um, in graduate school. And the question was then, um, do I want to go into, into government? Um, because in government, I realize in, in the U.S. government, you're going to be a very, very small cog in a big machine. But it's a very important machine. And I thought, I'm, I'm all right with that. I don't need to, um, you know, be my own boss or anything like that. I'd like to contribute to uh, resolving large questions, even if my particular contribution is a small one within the larger enterprise. So U.S. government was fine. And then then a question is, is it going to be diplomacy or something else? And when I was in graduate school, and this was the time I was really shopping around for a career, there were two things happened. One was I was exposed to a different set of ideas at my graduate um, university than I had been as an undergraduate, a uh, different set of ideas in terms of right, left, center, that kind of thing. And it made me a little bit uneasy that if I went into a diplomacy or policy kind of role, that I would be pushing a, a a policy that I might later on might find out was wrong or misguided, um, and I thought maybe that's not right for me. But instead, um, the other thing that happened was there were two of my um, professors who ran a particularly um, interesting course at my university, a seminar course. They were both agency careerists at at, at high levels, and uh, they didn't exactly recruit us, but about a half dozen of us from that course ended up working there. So maybe they did. And, uh, and I, I came to understand the role of intelligence in policy as being to, 
as has been um, put by by others, being to elevate the debate, right? The, the intelligence analyst is not taking a policy position, is not making value judgments, is trying to examine uh, a system, not a historical system, but a, a current system out there somewhere in the world in foreign affairs, and understand those dynamics in such a way as to support others who are making policy decisions or operational decisions or trying to advance um, a country's interests. Uh, and and that seemed like a really attractive role to me. And it, 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 it kind of, you can maybe hear the echoes in that to the posture of uh, of a war game, which is, you know, to present a model of how something worked. And in a way, that's what, with regard to complex human affairs, that's what intelligence analytic work is trying to do. It's trying to develop a more insightful model of how something works so that it can inform um, policy through opportunity analysis, through saying, okay, here's how this works. You know, we think, dear policymaker, if you were to push here or pull there, you're likely to get this or that result. Um, or here's how we think this, this works. If we see this or that indicator, we think there might be a danger emerging. And we're going to try and, and, and let you know of that danger, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Policymaker, sooner than you otherwise would find out about it. That, that's our role. And then it, it's not up to, to me as the intelligence analyst to, to you know, push U.S. policy uh, uh, in one direction or another, really. That, that's somebody else's job. And that, that appealed to me. And, you know, there's, there's always the assumption with something like the CIA that, you know, you're dealing with powers that are hostile to American interests. But is there an element, was there an element, without obviously getting too specific, was there an element within the CIA that you're also dealing with powers that are friendly to the USA and plotting a direction with how to interface with them? Well, I I think it's even broader than that, to be honest with you. It's, it's trying to understand and address whatever may be happening out there that can affect the nation's interests. So that might be something like, you know, what is the direction that this alliance is taking? Um, what is it that is important to our allies uh, that, you know, we need to be uh, ready to make sure we can still provide, for example? And that would be a relevant um, question for a policymaker to to put to intelligence, right? Really, anything that has to that is that is. Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Relevant to policy where, you know, information... And analysis can be brought to bear. It's really, really very, it's really very broad. Now, certainly when it comes to threats, certainly when it comes to warning of bad things that might happen, well, that's going to be a big area that intelligence 
place, but that's because those are the things that policymakers worry about and, and want want to have support in terms of, of warning, right? And in terms of mitigation as well. But it's also, as I said, the phrase, the common phrase is opportunity analysis. Opportunity analysis can be about good things or bad things. It's it's not just, hey, this bomb is going to go off. It's also, what could we do here to make good things happen? You know, I'm just an average schlub who's sort of going through my life. And my connection to world events is through the newspaper, through the, through the TV, through the internet. When you're working at the CIA, do you feel like you're in the middle of history? And do you feel like you're making history? <clears throat> well, I, I would, I, I would say for, for myself, I mean, I'm, I was a working level. Okay. So I wasn't any great, um, you know, leader of massive, you know, uh, uh, commanding massive resources or anything like that. And, uh, I was cer- I certainly had history being made around me and you do feel responsible to do whatever is in front of you to, to fulfill your mission as effectively as you can. But you also, I think, see in a way that, um, is 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 incorrectly fictionalized in most you know dramatic representations you see how large the enterprise is and that is to say not just one agency but the entire intelligence community and then its partnership with an even more gargantuan defense community and multiple other um policy and operational communities in a large um national security infrastructure that is just one country in a, in a constellation of countries that might be working together uh, for, for common purpose. So, you know, yes, you, you feel that you are a part of history, but I think I always retained what I suspected I was going to feel that, that, that realization that I'm a very small piece of a very large history. Now, in, in Britain, when we talk about the civil service, the people who work at Westminster in the government, the idea is that they are politically neutral, that their job remains their job, regardless of the ministers they're helping, regardless of the party that's in power. Is that the same with the CIA? Are you essentially a politically neutral organisation? And is there a shift in in working there under different administrations? So that was very much the ethos when I was there. Uh, and I, I think it's the ethos, by the way, of the U.S. civil service also generally, that if you're a, a career civil servant, um, you're, you're, you know, your oath is to the United States Constitution. It is not to a particular leader or party. There are, in fact, laws against as a civil servant, there are laws against too much direct political participation by yourself um, in any partisan campaign. Uh, so uh, as a civil servant under the Hatch Act, I was, you know, I was allowed to put a bumper sticker on my car, but I was not allowed to participate in a, a candidate's, you know, campaign to run for office, for example. Um, and, uh, and down to uh, guidance on, you know, Twitter behavior and that and the like, so that it, all to ensure that impartiality that you just described in the UK, um, which is, I think, a good thing. Uh, and, and that's 
especially the case in terms of the ethos, at least when I was there, of the intelligence community. Again, because the idea was we, we bring neutral, objective information, not policy agendas or, or value judgments to policymakers. And it's their bailiwick to decide to go this direction or that direction, up, down, left, or right. We're just there as, as guides and sources of information and perhaps at most a uh, coach to help them with whatever we can to achieve whatever it is they're trying to achieve. And so, of course, that's going to, those objectives and those values and those areas of focus are going to change from one administration to the next as, as elections have their, have their consequences. And then the intelligence community adjusts. So a very, um, you know, expected and valid way for that to proceed is a new administration comes in. It's a different party. It's a different set of decision makers. They have different policy objectives and they have different focuses. They have different sets of concern and the intelligence community moves its resources in response. It's not supposed to mean that the intelligence community gives you different answers, but it may mean that we're going to put more resources looking at this problem than that problem, this opportunity than that opportunity, this threat than that threat. A lot of that, of course, also is not just in response to elections and administrations, but in response to events and what the nature is of the world. And so you designed games whilst working at the CIA. I was reading a very interesting article about you the other day in preparation for this, talking about training games you designed for, for CIA operatives. What is the difference between those games and the, the commercial games that you make? Um, yes, that's right. The, 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 the difference is you're starting with a purpose. You're starting with a certain goal. Uh, if you're designing a course uh, and you're designing a, you know, a, a training course, let's say, in the government, you're going to have an overall course goal. What is it, what is the re- what is it you're trying to achieve by having people learn these skills or whatever? And then you have individual learning objectives uh, that we're going to spend two hours with students doing this activity. And at the end of that two hours, students will be able to blank. And so it's very, it should be, if it's designed properly, very, uh, very purpose-driven. And, and if we use a game as a, a teaching method, the way we might use a lecture or uh, uh, a hands-on exercise or a role play, we're going to instead use a tabletop game. It needs to be designed or at least adapted from something else, very much with that learning objective in mind. And, and, and that's not the case, I would say, with a commercial hobby game. It might have a similar topic, let's say, but the first point of a hobby game is to be fun. And uh, so it might be that the fun of playing the game is that you're learning something about history, let's say. Uh, so both cases you might have conveying real life dynamics as being part of what you're doing. But as you balance different, um, uh, you know, competing goods in a game, such as accessibility and versus detail, let's say, um, you're going to be guided in those decisions in weighing those choices as a designer by that overarching goal. So if it's a classroom game and the situation is that we have a learning objective. These students are being paid to do this. Uh, and we're only successful if these students will do their job better at the end than they would have before. Uh, we're not going to be as concerned with 
fun or replay value. They're probably only going to play it when that one class they take, right? Uh, if it's we want to sell this game to players to you know the, for them to pay money to spend their spare time doing this with their friends, well then it, it better be it better be entertaining. <laughs> it has to be has to be fun. Maybe it'll also be educational. That's great, but that's probably not the reason that that game will sell and actually get played. So your next game then is a game. It's actually a game that I've played quite extensively, and it's. I never really, even though the the word war is in the title, I never really thought of it as a war game, but this is War of the Ring. So to what extent does this game conform to the tropes of sort of standard war games and in which ways does it differ? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Can you give me, what's a, give me an example. What is, a, what is a standard trope of war games? Well, um, you're asking someone who's not an expert here, but, you know, if you look at card-driven games, the... Well, I well, I guess the cleaving to historical necessity and you know very granular sort of terrain elements that that sort of thing. Yeah, I I think it does. Uh, it it cleaves to details that we have of this world, and of course, it's a fictional world. It's not real history, but. What makes that world uh, so uh, engrossing for us and what made uh, The Lord of the Rings uh, such a success was the detail, was the detail that, that Tolkien put into it. And, and, and it was coherent detail. It, it fit together and it had its history and it had its terrain and it had its cultures. And... Uh, it was it, it it transported you there for that reason. It was like reading the, you know, information that we really had about some other time and place that really had happened, right? And so that that that's what makes it immersive. So the game does all that too. It cleaves to the the history of the that's that's in the books, uh, as far as I know. Anyway, I'm no Tolkien expert. I know some. <laughs> I'm not one myself, but certainly to the degree that it it it, it transports me there, and in. Uh, detail. Uh, maybe the terrain is not as detailed as a uh, hex encounter, you know, monster game or something like that. But I would say that the um, the the detail of the um, area movement system and the troops and the siege and battle mechanics and recruiting and all that is uh, comparable to games I've designed, for example, where I might have just a couple types of terrain. And a uh, simple area movement system and a couple types of, of units uh, and simple, very simple, um, even deterministic combat resolution in some of my games. So, yeah, I think War, war of the Ring to me is a, is a war game that, that gets, for me, derives a lot of its fun, not just from clever mechanics, gameplay, or, or, or beautiful art, but from its model of a complex System in this case, uh, the the war that takes place in the in the, the 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 Lord of the Rings books. And and you said you're not a Tolkien expert, but were you drawn to War of the Ring because of Tolkien, or was it a, just a case of someone said, "I think you should play this game. It's brilliant," and you played it and thought it was brilliant? Well, I had been a fan. I read I read the books uh, as a as a uh, as a high schooler, so I was already into um 
I was already into the story. I guess I came to the game because I saw it at a friend's house, and he had um, he had uh, painted the miniatures, and it just looked uh, fantastic. And uh, you know, I had uh, two young boys. He had a he had a young boy that he that he had done that for, and they played the game. And I had two young boys, so I was I had my eye open for things that they might like. And so, uh, so that inspired me to get the game. And we, you know, but the project was that the boys and I would paint all the 204 little miniatures together, um, which we did. They painted some of them, but I painted most of them, I would say. Uh, but it turns out to be an absolutely masterful design. It's just a tremendous uh, asymmetric balancing act, um, uh, pulled off with, with a plum. So I want to go on now and talk about what certainly, certainly in my sort of, circle of gamer friends that you're most famous for and this is the coin series so how did you come up with the idea lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Of a series of games based on counterinsurgency. Well, I had done um, Labyrinth, the War on Terror for GMT Games, and that was essentially a commissioned uh, design suggested to me by GMT Games president Gene Billingsley. And I had, had done Labyrinth, the War on Terror as a two-player game about global jihadism. And and it had done well. And uh, based on that success, I thought I could come back to Gene and say, well, I, I, you know, I, I'd like you to take my next game and here's what it is, and uh, which he did. And that was to uh, zero in a little bit on the national level. So I talked earlier about the scope, tactical, operational, strategic, and so forth. Well, Labyrinth is grand strategic. I mean, it's, it's sort of a, it's a global conflict. It's a very... Um, rough level of resolution, if you will. And with only two players, even though there are many different nations and many different jihadist movements loosely aligned that I tried to simulate as best I could with just two players. And I thought, um, I'd like to zero in on what seems like, so backing away, the, the, the premise of that game, Labyrinth, is that the war on terror is a global or was a global counterinsurgency. But what Al-Qaeda was trying to do was um, overthrow governments across the Muslim world uh, and to do so using classic tools of insurgents, including terror. And so I was already interested in, in, in terrorism and uh, in insurgency and counterinsurgency from my day job. I was interested in modeling it. I'd done what I could in the format of Labyrinth, and I wanted to zero in on one, a single country uh, and its insurgency and counterinsurgency and expand the model to include multiple players because insurgencies, um, experts tell us, are always, uh, almost always multifactional affairs. And, uh, and the story of Colombia was fascinating to me uh, because... Uh, it was a case of a successful counterinsurgency in which the government faced down simultaneously three different insurgencies, left-wing, uh, right-wing extremists, and, uh, and uh, narco uh, uh, 
you know, commercial insurgency, the nar narco terrorists, and 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 succeeded to a great degree in expanding the government's writ across its own territory after decades of having essentially given up about half the the geography of the country. And the more I looked at Colombia, the more uh, interested I became in the way that these different factions in there, with each with its own vision for what the future of the country should look like, um, uh, all had different relationships with each other, wheeled and dealed <laughs> in, 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 in remarkable ways. And I thought this would be the perfect setting for the first in a series because insurgency uh, is an internal war in general much more common than the big conventional wars that tradition, the tradition of war gaming, had tended to focus on. World War II, Napoleonic Wars, American Civil War, that kind of thing. Well, there were so many stories of internal wars that had not been touched or only lightly touched. In fact, Colombia was a setting for only one previous war game, coincidentally um, published uh, out of my own town, and it had been published in uh, 1990, which predated the period of Colombia that I wanted to do in my own game. So it was completely um, virgin territory as well for simulation. And I knew that there were settings like that to be modeled, you know, across the across the globe and across history. So I was able to propose it as the first volume in a series. And how do these conflicts differ from the grand conflicts that we that we instantly think of when someone says the word war? Well, uh, one way I think that they differ is that um, something that's true about all uh, military conflicts, but is vividly presented in these internal conflicts, and in that they all have aspects that are not purely military. They all have aspects that include politics and economics and culture and so forth. But in internal wars, these aspects, I think, come more to the fore because it becomes more clear as you're trying to change. You're not just trying to conquer a chunk of land with boots, right? You're trying to change the nature of, of governance. You're trying to change the loyalty of people and populations. And so political tools and political effects uh, are, 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 remain front and center even as um, shooting and bombing and marching and the like um, still matter. And those of, that's, you know, these effects, politics and economics and culture and so forth, um, social effects, these are important in, in conventional warfare as well, but it's easier for a simple game, a simple model to set those aside and focus exclusively on the, the movement of divisions, if you will. And I, I, I'm, I was interested, I'm interested in this sort of the multidisciplinary look because the, because the world is multidisciplinary. All these different aspects of life are interwoven. And so, uh, and so that I think makes insurgencies, that's, I mean, it's one of many ways to differ, but makes them, um, fascinating to me because because then we have to somehow take, let's say, political factors into account. Otherwise, there's no way we can really um, gain an understanding of what's important in a guerrilla war. And so it's it's been really interesting being a gamer in the last couple of years because I've found 
that listening to podcasts and speaking to friends and even myself sitting down to a game of Cuba Libre, that the, the, the coin series are branching over to gamers that wouldn't traditionally play war games. Do you have any idea why this is? Yeah, I am. I'm very happy to, to hear that. Um, and it's part, it's a part of my intent. Um, so hopefully it, it because I, because I, it, the series has succeeded in that way. But I have, as, as some of my earlier comments might, might betray, I actually have some frustration about how, uh, tribal, uh, the board gaming hobby in general is that there are, um, you know, it's not that I, that, that people shouldn't have tastes in games. I have tastes in games and there are certain kinds of games I'm more likely to play than others. It's not so much that, but it is that, that we, um, seem to adhere so fiercely to the categories and, and that there are gulfs between this flavor of game and that flavor of game. When one could imagine a fusion of those flavors might, might be quite tasty. And, and if we look at, culture in general. I mean, when you get fusion in music, in food, in the arts, you know, very often it's something great because it's a fusion. In fact, all innovation is actually the combination of, of previous different ideas in new ways, right? And so, so I am for filling in those gaps as much as possible, and that broadens everybody's enjoyment. If I'm a war gamer and uh, I, out of tradition, I just don't like anything with wooden cubes, you know, well, I'm missing out on a lot of fun and, and, and exploration and knowledge and, 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 and social life. So why should that be? So with the coin series, my attempt was to bring tribes together and, and then we could use maybe, uh, you know, unfair phrases, but they're the panzer pushers and the cabbage growers, you know, and I'm hoping to kind of bring them both to the table together. And for the, for the traditional war gamers, the message is, um, you know, this is a war game. It's a historical simulation. It's a, it's a competent one. It's a serious one. It happens not to be about the kind of war that you've studied in other games in the past, but it's still a war game. It's still about military history. It has something to tell you. And it happens not to look like maybe most of the games you've played, but when you play it, you'll see that that too is purposeful and uh, is actually even can be attractive try it out right and and at the same time i'm trying to lure uh gamers who uh might not be interested in something about a serious topic a consequential topic because you know i'm not playing these fun these games to be for serious consequential learning that's not my you know that's not why i'm i'm here for fun you know i mean so i've been working all day you know i want something that's going to be light and lighthearted um, but to say, you know what, that, look at this. It's, it, 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 looks like other things that you found to be fun. Um, uh, give it a try. Uh, and maybe you'll find as you're trying it out that this topic is actually more interesting than you might have thought it was. And, and that has happened, that has happened to me with games, right? And so if I, if the games have that power to lure me to explore topics that I otherwise would not have known were interesting, I'm hoping to do the same with different uh, subcultures within the, the the gaming hobby, if that makes sense. And so, there are lots of coin games now. Which one do you think gets closest to fulfilling that aim? Well, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know on on what basis. Um, 
what basis I might make that judgment. I suppose, I mean, I could say, I think the, the biggest seller has been Fire in the Lake, which is the one about Vietnam. And Vietnam, of course, is a very um, serious, even grim topic. And it is not one of the most accessible. It's one of the larger, um, perhaps slightly more complicated games in the series. And yet, it has the largest following, at least based on sales numbers. So that seems to me to be a, a success in that it also is a topic, it's probably the most gained topic in the series. I mean, it's not certainly not the first game, nor will it be the last on the Vietnam War. And, uh, and yet it is, it, 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 that game, Fire in the Lake has reached, has reached a broader audience. So perhaps it's the one that is, you know, it's most war game like, and yet also has, has reached the broadest, uh, broadest part of the market. So your next game then is Steel Inferno Verdun 1916. Firstly, can we <laughs> conceive of the kind of hell that the Battle of Verdun was? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great and fitting question because um one of the things that fascinates me about the Western Front in World War One is it is how it's trying to imagine what that would have been like and how somebody could go at that um, week after week and, and year after year. Um, and so can we probably not? I would say, however, I mean, I've never been in, uh, well, I mean, I've never been in infantry combat, okay? So can I really imagine what that would be like? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I try from different media I'm consuming, but I suspect whatever I might imagine is, is going to be a pale and maybe even misguided shadow of, of the real thing. So that's probably true of all wars. So I think the answer is probably no. However, I would say that through the games, I do feel we can get a, a, a much better understanding, again, of the dynamics. Because the, the kind of um, the, the simplified, unexamined view is you have two armies that are dug in. Whichever army goes over the top gets slaughtered. And it's just, you know, st stupidity that these were stupid people to even do that. Why would you just order your troops forward to just be slaughtered, right? And then the other side does the same thing and there's bloodletting and nothing changes in four years. You know, that's, and that turns out to be a rather misleading view of what was actually uh, a, a rather strategically dynamic um, back and forth in which uh, chunks of terrain were taken, uh, hopes of, of breakthrough were um, were often present for, for plausible reasons, where breakthroughs were achieved, but then counterattacks um, uh, reversed them, and so on and so on and so on. There's a fascinating um, literature and now game repertoire that represents this. And this design from 2020 from um, Walter Vodowski, uh in France, Steel Inferno, uh, in a very beautiful, ex accessible way, shows us um, those kinds of dynamics of 
of, of trench warfare offensives and counteroffensives at the operational level. And, uh, and, and that's why I love it. And, and sort of building on with, from this, you know, you read Wilfred Owen, you, you watch documentaries, you, you read books, and it seems that the First World War, as opposed to the Second World War, where it was felt that there's a, you know, a, a worldwide threat, the First World War seemed to be a war of brinksmanship, a war of essentially wanton, futile slaughter. Do you agree with this? And even though, you know, Verdun, as you said, was strategically dynamic, is there a sense of yeah, the futility of the First World War baked into this game? Yeah. Uh, well, let me let me separate discuss separately two words you used: wanton and and futile. Um, wanton, yes. When we think about the casualties that were deemed acceptable in the pursuit of the goals of the war, it, it's it, it seems uh, incomprehensible or idiotic or monstrous. To us today, right? We, you know, we um, certainly have had um, terrible losses, for example, in the long conflict in Afghanistan. But if you put the numbers of those losses relative to our populations and you compare that to to the world wars, um, it, it just pales, right? So there wasn't an, an idea at that time in in the great war that we could suffer these types of losses and still come out as winners that the sides did not i mean nobody until the whole thing cracked socially through revolution nobody said you know what another year like the last year and it doesn't matter what we achieve in this war it's not going to be worth it let's just make peace right nobody said that that's wanton Okay. Um, now we have to understand the, the the view of the time and the view of uh, you know what nationalism was in the time and what had already been experienced and what the fears were and so forth. It's not irrational. It's just a different value system than than the one we know today. Now, futile is a little more difficult, I think, because uh, first of all, we have retrospect, and we know not only what the end of the war was and what it cost, we also know what came but a generation later with the Second World War. And we know the difficulties for, for many of the countries of the interwar period as well. And one could say, well, what did World War I really achieve? Right? Because then, then we had the Cold War, and we had World War II, then we had the Cold War, and so forth and so on. But of course, that's not really fair to judge the decisions and actions of people who were living in 1914, 1915, 1916, I can understand the expectation and the hope that 
if we crack the code on this, if we make this big push and we use this new tactic or this new technology, we can achieve our national aims. And among our national aims is making sure that there'll never be another catastrophe like this in the future and that that is achievable because of the extreme nature of this catastrophe. Of course, we're not ever going to do this again, right? Uh, we just need to make this big push now. And so what what is the purpose of a game like Steel Inferno? Is it to teach us about war? And is it okay to be entertained by these things? Yes, to a degree, and yes, uh, would be my answers. So, so it's a commercial game, and therefore its purpose is to, is to entertain, is to have fun. But because it is a war game, even though it, it, it is very accessible, it is not a super detailed game, and it is a, uh, I mean, it's, 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 I think, a physically beautiful game. Um, the, the art, uh, in particular, is, is um, unusual for games. And uh, uh, it, it's it's very vivid, um, but it does have a, in it a, a, a teaching as a component of the fun because it's it's a ser- it is a serious simulation of that battle, and it answers questions like um, how how was it that you know overwhelming uh, force, especially artillery on a trench line, could still fail to produce a breakthrough. Um, how was it that the Germans could set out to fight a battle of attrition with the idea of bleeding the French army white and then end up bleeding itself just as much? Um, how was it and why was it that the French felt that after having barely held at Verdun, they would commit yet more um, hundreds of thousands of bodies to taking back, you know, the the uh, acres of mud that they had lost and so forth, right? So you... You play the game and you do learn um, not only the dynamics, but I think the mindset of that battle. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a tremendously, it's a fascinating, mysterious, and very important battle. It's perhaps the longest battle in history, lasting almost all of the year 1916, um, and uh, was uh, iconic of the, the Western Front, um, was a, a remarkable um, idea on the german side that we can we will attack where the enemy will not allow us to pass through because our objective is actually just to kill enemy soldiers rather than actually taking ground um it's it's a phenomenon i mean it is a it is a a remarkable battle that um poses a number of mysteries that the game indeed does help us uh, address so I want to talk now about the CIA in general and sort of the history of the organization. And so I you were at the CIA on September the 11th 2001. What was that like? Well, for me personally, not a very um uh, exciting story, I'm afraid. I happened on that morning to be at an outbuilding taking a a language exam. And, uh, they, and so I was in isolation as, you know, uh, to be able to, you know, be, to, to complete the exam on my own, re- only on my own resources. And, uh, and they didn't pull us out. Um, and they, uh, when we got out, I was simply quickly told to not to go to headquarters and to go home. 
and and I, I didn't I didn't know anything. So I got in my car and I turned on the radio, and the uh, the radio said something like the South Tower has collapsed. Well, the um, the headquarters building has has uh, two sections that that we called towers, and I was like, oh my god, they they somebody's attacked headquarters. <laughs> but of course, they're talking about Manhattan. Um, what it was what it was 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 like was um, I was not at that time uh, on anything to do with terrorism, Al Qaeda, or the Middle East. I was you know following a different part of the world, and uh, so it was in a way like uh, feeling a little bit useless in terms of being on the on the sidelines and not being um, not being directly involved in uh, the momentous uh, events and what was going to be coming soon. But that changed fairly quickly because what, what of course happened very quickly and in a sustained way was a redirection of effort. There had already been a growing effort on, on counterterrorism, certainly, um, but with 9-11, uh, the, the, the resources, understandably, um, to deal with that threat um, flowed. And many, many of us who had been doing other issues sooner or later ended up in some aspect of counterterrorism as I did myself. And so the CIA has been around, if my history is correct, it may be, since it's basically after the Second World War. How effective as an organisation in its stated purpose do you think it's been since it started? Well, I do think it's been very, very effective. And um, I, I would hasten to say it's, again, it's perhaps the most glamorised, but it's one of many different uh, intelligence agencies. And I think the, the US intelligence community has um, you know, many um, great achievements to its name, not all of which are, of course, known. And and we can say, since the CIA was a, a creature creation of the Cold War, it was part of the constellation of capabilities that helped um, the Cold War uh, uh, avoid developing into a much greater tragedy um, than than uh, parts of it certainly were, and that contributed to a successful conclusion of that, you know, 40-some year crisis for the world. So I think, I think we, can, we can give the agency credit for achieving its part of that and for remaining um, quite relevant and effective in what followed, which was not the end of history after the Cold War, but uh, a, a continuation of some threats, development of, of new ones, and uh, another um, international, sort of a defining international conflict, and, and that was the, uh, the, 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 uh, the uh, requirement to defend against and disrupt and ultimately overcome ideologically Al-Qaeda and jihadism and the like. And so do you think the CIA has, has sort of universally been a force for good? Or have there been examples of overreach or, or simply wrong decisions in its history? Well, I, 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 I can't imagine that it would be universally a force for good. Um, 
especially when especially when what's good is a matter of, of perspective uh you know who you are and, and what where your interests lie um but if i look at any any um organization over a period of decades is there any that has only been a force for good um i mean uh, christopher hitchens i think did a a a um sort of an expose on Maria, uh, Maria Teresa and the, the terrible things that had, had, had resulted from her activities, you know, well, I mean, so, <laughs> you know, we can, we, I, I think in the complexity of life, there's, there, there are, there is bound to be errors, of course, no, no, no human enterprises is, is, is without flaws. And when you're engaging in um, conflict, like the Cold War, um, there's going to be overreach as well. And so, you had asked earlier a question about uh, World War II and is it attractive because there are sort of clear goodies and baddies. And that's, you know, th th there's something to that 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 question that you asked. And we can look back on World War II and have a, a pretty pretty clear bifurcation of of, of good or evil, but. But it's, it makes the point by being exception uh, to the rule. And I think the rule is that life is ambiguous. Human lives um, uh, are, are conflicted. And we can, for the, in the case of, of the agency, for example, in the Cold War, certainly there were um, uh, cases where the, the, the agency was the, the arm of an intervention in uh, a foreign government. Uh, that may have been seen at the time through the, the lens of, of the, 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 the Soviet threat during the Cold War as a beneficial intervention on behalf of, of democracy. But as we look back on it, we have to say, well, over the long run, the effect was perhaps anti-democratic uh, because, because we end up with uh, you know, authoritarian governments that happen to be you know, allied with the United States, but were nevertheless uh, not representative of their people. So your next game, then you're you're a first among designers actually who've been on this show who are willingly taking work with them to the cabin. So your next game is Inferno, <laughs> and this is an unpublished game. What is your design? process do you have a fixed sort of i get to the desk at nine and i work until 12 or is it more scattergun than that uh i i do have a, a process like a daily process like that now that i'm retired i think before when i had a day job and and young children of course it was catch as catch can and when i had the spare time and energy um i would do it but now i have the luxury in retirement that i do more or less wake up have my coffee and start you know, working on on something, and very often the something is is a game design, and so it's for me it would not be taking work to the cabin. It would be taking my joy because, as I talked about uh, earlier, in our hobby, um, there are many ways to enjoy it: um, playing games with friends, playing games alone, um, reviewing and studying games, modifying games, uh, tinkering with games, and designing new games. I mean, it's all in the same medium, but there are different kinds of joys. And so for me, of course, uh, I, I, I see 
game design. It's not work. You know, it's, it's, it's my hobby. I do it for me. It's, it's a joy. And so I would not want to leave that behind if I had to get, get to this cabin. Um, my, and yeah, so my routine is most of, most of the, uh, work I'm doing is in the first half of the day. I happen to be, I like to get up at the same time in the morning and I'm productive about until midday. And, and, uh, and then I become, I become, uh, less, less able to effectively compose, let's say. And so how do you find a topic to build a game around? And how long is the research process before you can get down to the nuts and bolts of creating the game? Well, let me talk about it. It's maybe different in different cases. Uh, and it, it usually revolves around here is a topic that I find a very engaging story, a system that I want to understand better. There's something, there's a dynamic there that's interesting, and it's not yet adequately covered in the medium. So that was the case with my first game, which was about the French and Indian War. It was the case with uh, Labyrinth, the War on Terror. It was the case with the insurgency, counterinsurgency coin series, as I, as I talked about. And Inferno is, is a similar case. So Inferno is going to be volume three in a series of games that I'm working on right now that focus on military operations in, in medieval times. So the first volume was Nevsky, which looks at 13th century Russia, um, Alexander Nevsky versus the, the, the German uh, Teutonic Knights, just like in Nevsky the movie, that, that campaign. And I went in that direction because I thought there was a dearth of interesting, uh, of, of games in general, that looked at that intermediate operational level of warfare. There was a reasonable number of battlefield games about big medieval battles. There was a reasonable number of strategic or grand strategic games that would look at entire um, uh, wars or all of Europe, even in the Middle Ages. Um, but not a lot that looked effectively, I thought, at the raising and moving of, of individual um, armies and how uh, the feudal system generated and supported uh, troops in the field, and so I, I, I wanted to I wanted to come up with a new game system that would cover that. So Nevsky was the first one. The second one, which is currently in art with GMT, is Almoravid, which is uh, set in 11th century Spain. So Reconquista, Christians against uh, Muslims, and Volume Three will be set in 13th century Italy, in Tuscany, in, in the conflict there between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. So Inferno, as in Dante's Inferno. And it's Inferno that I selected to bring to Cabin because it is a design that has already been, um, has been um, put together in its content and structure but that I am going to be refining. It's a co-design, as many of my games are. And in this case, um, Enrico Acerbi, a veteran war, war game designer in Italy, um, got into conversation with me in the aftermath of Nevsky, and I asked him if he would design a game with me, and he could pick the, the setting and the period, and he did. And so I have ahead of me um, doing the kind of refinement work to take Enrico's original design and meld it into my series and, and, and hash it out. And so that's what I would be doing in the cabin. 
So I want to go on now and talk about the future. So you have Inferno coming. Is there, what do you have coming out in the short to medium term that war gamers can enjoy? So the next uh, two things new that, uh, that I'm directly involved in, um, because I have a lot of indirect involvement in the rest of the coin series, but two, two things that, that are coming in the near future. One is Fall of Saigon which is an expansion within the coin series to Fire and Lake, the Vietnam game that I mentioned before. Uh, the second, it's the second uh, game in the series that's gotten an expansion, the first one being um, Falling Sky, which is Caesar and Gaul. Uh, and in Fire and the Lake, we, uh, and I say we because my co-designer is the, the, the great Mark Herman, um, Mark and I focused Fire and the Lake on the main period of U.S. involvement in the uh, in the guerrilla war in Vietnam, 1964 to 1972. But of course, the war was longer than that on either side. And what Fall of Saigon will do is it will be the sequel to complete the story and take the war through the mainly um, South Vietnamese Arvin versus North Vietnamese NVA part of the conflict that ends with the fall of, of, of Saigon in South Vietnam in April 1975. So that is now in art. Uh, there will be a separate solitaire system by um, Bruce Manfield. An intense amount of development and testing work has been led by Jason Carr. And so Fall of Saigon um, is, I'd say, many weeks to a few months away, depending on how quickly the art proceeds. So that's, that's one. The other is the volume two of Loving Campaign series that I mentioned has also um, just beginning art. So if uh, anybody who's who's had a look at my game Nevsky about the uh, the Russian um, theater in medieval times, this is the same system, but in the much uh, bigger, more populated, richer, um, and more fortified uh, Iberia of the 11th century. So it's uh, Muslim Taifa kingdoms and uh, North African army, a Berber-led uh, force called the Almoravids, intervening to hold back uh, the Christians of Leon, Castilla, and Aragon, uh, attempting to push back the Muslims in the Reconquista. So El Cid, uh, uh, Alfonso VI, um, and uh, Yusuf Sultan Almoravitun, all duking it out in Spain. And that is in art. So the first thing folks are going to see probably is some early looks at, at early bits of art. Uh, Chechu Nieto uh, is doing the game board as he has for, for most of my games. Uh, and then other Spanish artists are involved in uh, the cards and other materials. So as soon as we have some things to show, that'll be the next thing that fans will see. So I had Mark Herman on this show. And when I spoke to my Wargamer friends and said, I'm interviewing Mark Herman for the show the sort of eyes glazed over and they sort of looked at me in wonderment how how important is mark herman to the to the hobby of war games yeah it's it's funny that you should should ask that because we've just had a question on twitter somebody uh, uh was putting on if you know mount rushmore which has four u.s presidents on it if you had a mount, mount rushmore for war game designers who would the four be and i mentioned for me it was charles s roberts who i mentioned as the um founder of Avalon Hill and that whole tradition, really the founder of the hobby, uh, uh, James Dunnigan, who brought in SPI, the second big, you know, giant uh, uh, war game maker in, in the 1970s, Mark Herman and Ch Chad Jensen. So um, 
So I, clearly, I, I think uh, Mark is a, um, uh, a, a fundament of what we have achieved in the, in the hobby and in the state of the art. Um, he, you know, he began on the inside in SPI in 1970s. I mean, I was in, I was in high school and he was already designing and publishing games, uh, in one of the two great companies of the day. Um, his company, Victory Games, was, in my eyes, the leading, uh, quality producer of war games in the 1980s and into the 1990s in a period when the thinking was the whole hobby might die out and just be replaced by computers. Well, that, that didn't happen. And among the reasons it didn't happen was Mark Herman. Uh, and I would point to especially his absolute breakthrough design in the 90s called We the People, which invented the card-driven game uh, subgenre of war games. And it's a genre within which, I mean, all of my designs, all of my designs um, are built upon Mark Herman's We the People as the basis. So... Yes. <laughs> I don't know about, I don't know about eyes dicing over, but if you are into board war games and you don't, or you're not familiar with what Mark Herman has brought to your table, then yes, I, I can help you open your eyes. So when you think about, so the reason we're talking today is that I put out a tweet saying, cause I, I feel I neglect war game and war game designers on this show. So I put a tweet out saying, which war game designers would you like to see on the show? And you were by far the most popular request to that. When you look back at your contribution to war games, what do you think your contribution has been and where do you think you stand? Well, first, I, I appreciate that that compliment from your listeners. Um, if I'm going to be generous to myself, I guess what I would like to think is that I've brought the state of the art forward. That is, I've um, added new innovations to systems or put things together in new ways that give us a, a bigger and perhaps better toolbox in terms of mechanics to simulate history and military and military political affairs, especially. But more importantly, I would like to think that I succeeded in, in broadening the appeal of games that take a serious look at serious topics, at consequential topics. And, and, and you know, war is not a delightful topic it is a consequential topic and and i what makes me so happy uh about the the receptiveness of players to many of my designs is that is that they are they are willing to spend their spare time exploring strange, potentially strange, off-the-beaten-track settings from history that they would not have thought an attractive place to go in their free time uh, until picking up and playing 
a design I did. So that 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 to me, to to attract people to think about consequential human history um, that they would not have otherwise been tempted to spend their energy on. Um, if my games have helped do that for more people, that 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 to me is the is the greatest success. So your last game is another one of yours that isn't finished yet, and this is Hunt for Blackbeard. And I was reading up on this to prepare for this interview. And is this a hidden movement game? It is. It's a it's a hunt game that, with two players, would be played with uh, stand up blocks that would show uh, Blackbeard's activities only to the Blackbeard player and the, the hunters playing uh, the Royal Navy principally. Um, would just be, you know, occasionally able to look at the other side of a block to try to find the pirate. And then each player would also have a screen with some tiles and pawns and things happening behind in secret. And so how much fun was it to research the golden age of pirates? Well, it's 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 great fun. And in uh, like with some other of my designs, there's some, there's some personal um, attachment to it as well. So my first published war game, Wilderness War, was about the French and Indian War, and that came in part from uh, my interest in the Virginia frontier and, and, and George Washington during the French and Indian War and all of that. I live in Virginia, and so it was kind of local local history in a way. I could go out and drive to, to many of these places. Uh, uh, and uh, for Labyrinth, the War on Terror, um, it was really you know, what I had been dealing with in my day job for some some years, so it was already... Um, personal in 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 a way, uh, Nevsky, which I just mentioned, my it's really about it's from the Middle Ages, but it's about a part of the world that my father and his family are from. So it's it's a place I've not some in some cases I've not had the chance to to visit, but 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 hope to. But I, I've traveled there instead by doing the game design in a way. And and for Hunt for Blackbeard, it's it's Blackbeard's last days. Um, not in the Caribbean, the Caribbean being so, so famous for golden age of piracy, but in North Carolina, uh, North Carolina in 1718 and Blackbeard had, um, essentially arrived in North Carolina for sanctuary. He'd been more or less uh, put under too much pressure in the Caribbean by the authorities, but North Carolina seemed to have a, a governor who was, uh, either tolerant or simply did not have the capacity to effectively object to Blackbeard's presence there. And so North Carolina, a neighboring state to Virginia, uh, and it, in particular, the drama plays itself out in North Carolina's Outer Banks, Islands, and Sounds, and uh, it's, which has uh, been a, a regular vacation spot for my family over the, the, the last couple of decades. So um, I also um, am tied to Williamsburg. I went to college there. And I'm frequent, uh, frequently in Williamsburg, even to this day, Williamsburg, Virginia. And Williamsburg at that time was the capital of, of Virginia. And it was the Virginians um, from Williamsburg who supported the expedition to hunt Blackbeard down in 1718. So all of these places that are um, rather dear to my heart get to appear on the game board. And, and do you have any tidbits of information about the sort of the age of pirates that, that most people wouldn't know that you find particularly interesting? Uh, well, uh, there's so many interesting aspects that I'm hoping to to bring people in this in this. Even though it's a little game, I think people will find it's kind of chock full of of, of history and historical tidbits. Um, one example is the uh, 
the, in the Battle of Ocracoke, this is the in which Blackbeard was was caught and and lost his life, and then his surviving crew was captured by the Royal Navy sent by by Virginia. So in that battle, it wasn't regular. It was a, it's almost the iconic pirate boarding battle because um, Blackbeard, after shooting up the uh, the, the the Navy sloops, uh, boarded one of them with his crew and was fought off by the brave uh, Royal Navy uh, uh, Lieutenant Maynard successfully. Well, in that battle, the the the, the ships that the ships are quite small. They're sloops. And in fact, the Navy, the Royal Navy had two larger warships, frigates up in Virginia on station there, but they didn't use those for this hunt. They commandeered civilian um, single mast ship sloops and put Navy crews on them and sailed. And the reason was because in these sounds of the outer banks, the shallows, uh, the shoals are a, a tremendous difficulty. And in fact, during the course of the battle, and this had happened in other pirate battles in the area, in the Carolinas, um, the ships, you know, occasionally ran aground, and uh, and and where Blackbeard was hiding out was an area that you could only kind of sail in and out through a little channel in the shoals and so forth. So these shallow, more shallow bottomed ships, and they were civilian ships on the Royal Navy side that weren't even equipped with cannon. So if you can imagine this, they're sailing to catch um, Blackbeard. Blackbeard has a sloop with about eight or nine cannon and swivel guns on it, and the Royal Navy is endeavoring to 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 hunt him down and bring him to heel, and they have no cannon at all. They're only shooting with their muskets. It's uh, you know, it's you wouldn't you wouldn't expect it from the classic movie scene of the broadsides firing at each other before the boarding action. And, and so when can people, because I was reading this and the minute I started reading it, because I, I love the Golden Age Pirates, I, I thought, I really, I really want to get hold of this. When can people get this game to the table? Well, there are really two answers to that. Um, in terms of the finished um, production game, that's going to be some time yet because uh, with GMT Games, my publisher, we go through a pre-order process. A game has to make uh, at least 500 orders and then it goes into a queue for art and uh, and so forth. And as, as you can imagine, um, with the uh, with the, the pandemic this year, I think um, everything has, has slowed down to some degree. And we are now, um, we have underway uh, an effort to do something that I had not intended to do before, but that is with this double blind game, we're going to design solitaire systems for both sides. So in a way, it'll be like three games in the box. You can have two players, hunters versus pirates, in that double-blind hidden movement game that I described. But we're going to see if we can't um, also deliver uh, a very similar experience, either playing Blackbeard against an automated uh, Royal Navy or playing the hunters against an automated um, pirate crew. So we'll see. So that design work is underway now. And so I don't know. It will. I hope my ambition is to have the game out for pre-order next calendar year. Um, but even then, it'll be some time beyond that. However, however, <laughs> for those who are really interested <laughs> and and uh, willing to try something out that is not necessarily the final version, uh, and if you are on um, Vassal, uh, which is a, it's, it's in a way like Tabletop Simulator, which I think folks will be very familiar with, but but is a um, an older, more two dimensional system that has a lot of free um, war games available on it, uh, and it's available at VassalEngine.org. And I highly recommend it. I do almost all my social gaming now on Vassal, 
Uh, well, there's a module for Hunt for Blackbeard on Vassal, and all that you need besides the Vassal module itself is the rule set, is the, the draft of the, of the rule book. And I'm happy to share that with anybody who would be, be interested to try the game out because um, for me, I'm always looking for feedback while we're still in uh, development of the game. So one last question then. Uh, you're heading out in fleeing the apocalypse, you're 88 miles an hour, you go around the corner, the back seat of the car flies open, four of the games fly down a ravine into a river and are swept away to posterity. Which game do you hope is sitting in the back seat of the car. Hunt for Blackbeard. Uh, and, 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 <laughs> yeah, and, and the reason because it's what I'm on right now, you know, so I think that would be my first thought. Um, uh, uh, because, uh, I mean, I was working on it this morning, so I want to work on it tomorrow morning. <laughs> so, you know, again, ask me in a few months and it'll be a different answer. But that's the, that is the project that I have right in front of me. And I have to say, I have to confess, if I had to give up um, either playing games that I love or designing games, I would give up playing games first. So it would be one of the designs in progress. And I know that's true because before I retired, when I really didn't have the luxury to do much of either, I, for, for many, many years, practically speaking, was only playing my own stuff in design and development and testing almost all the time. Uh, and I hated that. You know, I hated that, that I didn't have time to do both. Um, but, 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 but designing games is time consuming. So that was the choice I made for years. I think that would be the choice I would make today. So if people want to get hold of you, if they want to find out what you're up to, all of that sort of stuff, how can they go about it? Uh, best way is on Twitter. I'm at Volco26 and I'm, not there necessarily every single day, but I'm there a lot. And uh, so that's really the best way. Fantastic. Well, Volko Runka, thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me along on your apocalypse, Ben. This was, in, this was very enjoyable. You can support the show in many ways. You can tell your friends. You can talk about it on social media. You can talk about it in your own blog, podcast or video. Or you can support it directly by going to patreon.com forward slash 5G4D for a rolling donation or for a one-off donation, hitting the PayPal link at the bottom of the website, 5gamesfordoomsday.com. It's these donations that keep the show going. Also, if you want to say something nice about the show, or if you want to say something horrible about the show, you can contact me on Twitter at 5gamesfordoomsday, or send me an email at 5gamesfordoomsday at gmail.com. And, if I've managed to roll away from the grabbing hands, and the large amounts, I'll see you in two weeks for another... Five games for Doomsday.